Our scripture reading this morning is from Daniel chapter 3, selected verses. You can find it on page 431 in the paper Bibles. King Nebuchadnezzar made an image of gold whose height was 60 cubits and its breadth 6 cubits. He set it up on the plain of Dur in the province of Babylon. And the herald proclaimed aloud, You are commanded, O peoples, nations, languages, that when you hear the sound of the horn, pipe, lyre, trigon, harp, bagpipe, and every kind of music, you are to fall down and worship the golden image that King Nebuchadnezzar has set up. And whoever does not fall down and worship shall immediately be cast into a burning, fiery furnace. Then Nebuchadnezzar, in furious rage, commanded that Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego be brought. So they brought these men before the king. Nebuchadnezzar answered and said to them, Is it true, O Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, that you do not serve my gods or worship the golden image that I have set up? Now, if you are ready, when you hear the sound of the horn, pipe, lyre, trigon, harp, bagpipe, and every kind of music, to fall down and worship the image that I have made well and good. But if you do not worship, you shall immediately be cast into a burning, fiery furnace, and who, and who is the God who will deliver you out of my hands? Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego answered and said to the king, O Nebuchadnezzar, we have no need to answer you in this matter. If this be so, our God, whom we serve, is able to deliver us from the burning, fiery furnace, and he will deliver us out of your hand, O king. But if not, be it known to you, O king, that we will not serve your gods or worship the golden image that you have set up. Then Nebuchadnezzar was filled with fury, and the expression of his face changed against Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. He ordered the furnace heated seven times more than it was usually heated. And he ordered some of the mighty men of his army to bind Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego and to cast them into the burning, fiery furnace. Then these men were bound in their cloaks, their tunics, their hats, and their other garments, and they were thrown into the burning, burning fiery furnace. Because the king's order was urgent, the furnace overheated. The flame of the fire killed these men who took up Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. And these three men, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, fell bound into the burning, fiery furnace. Then Nebuchadnezzar was astonished and rose up in haste. He declared to his counselors, Did we not cast three men bound into the fire? They answered and said to the king, True, O king. He answered and said, But I see four men unbound walking in the midst of the fire, and they are not hurt, and the appearance of the fourth is like, the, like a son of the gods. Then Nebuchadnezzar came near to the door of the burning, fiery furnace. He declared, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, servants of the Most High God, come out and come here. Then Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego came out from the fire, and the satraps, the prefects, the governors, the king's counselors gathered together, and they saw that the fire had not had any power over the bodies of those men. The hair of their heads was not singed, their cloaks were not harmed, and no smell of fire had come upon them. Nebuchadnezzar answered and said, Blessed be the God of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, who has sent his angel and delivered his servants who trusted in him, and set aside the king's command and yielded up their bodies rather than serve and worship any god except their own god. Therefore I make a decree, any people, nation, or language that speaks anything against the god of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego shall be torn limb from limb and their houses laid in ruins, for there is no other god who is able to rescue in this way. 
Then the king promoted Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego in the province of Babylon. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be, Thanks to, be God. to God. Well, today we are coming to a pretty famous story. Um, all week, all fall, we've been looking at the book of Daniel, and we've been looking at these stories while trying to remember and understand the reality of the exile. So if you've been with us, you know that this book is written during a period of time when uh, these young men were taken from Jerusalem, where they had lived their whole life, and brought hundreds of miles away to Babylon to be raised and educated and grow up in the king's court and immerse in that culture. Uh, these men have been taken from their homeland and brought to a place that doesn't share any of their values. And as you go into the New Testament and you read about this idea of exile, you see that uh, the New Testament writers pick up on that, and they say our experience as Christians is it also a kind of exile, that Christians view their lives as exiles and strangers in this world. So like the exiles in Babylon that we're reading about, Christians are told that this world that we live in is not our home. So keeping that in mind, today we're going to look at Daniel chapter 3. And we're going to look at this account from that exile perspective. And as soon as you start to do that, you quickly realize that this is a tale not made for storybooks. This is not just some uh, account that happened a long time ago that has nothing to do with us, but this is something that should resonate deeply in our modern world. It should resonate deeply with us as we find ourselves in a place where the laws of the land often permit injustices that go directly in the face of the law of God. As we find ourselves in a place where the pressure to fit in and not make a scene often conflicts with our call to be faithful to our God. So this story, we're going to look at it this morning, and we're going to ask a question. We're going to ask, how can we find the strength to be faithful to God when there is tremendous pressure to do otherwise? How can we find the strength to be faithful to God when there is tremendous pressure on us to do something else? So we're going to break it down this way. We're going to see the choice that stands before the faithful. We're going to see the character of true faith. And then we're going to see the catalyst for faithfulness. So that's where we're going. We're going to go choice, character, catalyst, right? It's kind of easy to remember. So let's, let's try this out. The choice that's before the faithful. Um, actually, before we go any further, I just I want to kind of preface this by saying the next few weeks, we are going to be in some stories that have some miraculous stuff in them. We're reading some narratives that tell some really outrageous stories. These are our, our big miracles that uh, cannot be explained away. And if you're a skeptic here this morning, First of all, welcome. I'm glad you're here. I, I'm happy that you're here, and I recognize that reading a story like this can be a big distraction. <laughs> it can make it hard for you to hear what we're about to say, but let me just invite you on the outset not to let this distract you too much. 
First, you need to know that not every story in the Bible is like this. In fact, most of them aren't. These occasions are pretty rare. The moments when these miraculous events uh, break into history are few and far between, but they're important, and that's why we want to study them, and that's why we want to look at them. Uh, but usually what you find is, in these stories, when there are these big miracles, there is a purpose behind them. These are points when the kingdom of God is breaking into history in a unique way in order to communicate a message to God's people. And so there is a purpose. There's a purpose behind this miracle that we're going to look at that's, a, that's more than just being something fantastic. And secondly, I, I want to invite you, don't just dismiss the story outright because there's a miracle. Don't just write off what we're going to say because you know this stuff doesn't happen. You're correct. Usually, this stuff doesn't happen. But behind that thought, Miracles can't happen. There's another thought that's, that's going on in everyone's mind, and that is, there can't be a God who makes miracles happen. Usually, our problem with miracles boils down to a problem with God. And so, uh, just uh, put it this way. If you're going to say for sure miracles can't happen, you're also saying for sure there can't be a God. And so, if you're here this morning and you're checking things out, and you're trying to weigh these options, I just want to invite you uh, to hold that loosely this morning. If you're here, I imagine you're here for a reason, so give that some consideration. This story does end with a big miracle, but the miracle isn't really the point. Maybe in a couple weeks we'll find some stories where the miracle is the point, but this one, it's not totally the point. So let's recap the story real quick and try to get into the text. Okay, it starts out in verse 1. King Nebuchadnezzar, it says, He made an image of gold whose height was 60 cubits and its breadth 6 cubits. And he set it up on the plain of Dura in the providence of Babylon. Now the passage tells us that the king has set up this enormous image, but he doesn't, it doesn't tell us what this image is for. We can kind of gather later on when our, uh, the main characters in this story respond and they say, we're not going to worship your gods or this image you've set up. We can kind of gather some purpose behind it. But I think our best clue as to what this giant image is all about comes from last week. If you were here with us last week, you might remember that it was the story of this dream Nebuchadnezzar had where he saw a huge image and the top of that image was made of gold. The head of the image was made of gold and Daniel heard uh, Daniel told him that that image, that gold part of the image, represented his king, his kingdom that was going to fall. And here we are, just a few verses later, and we find that in response to that dream, Nebuchadnezzar has built this statue that is 90 feet tall and 9 feet wide and made of gold from head to toe. If you ask me, it, it seems like a defiant response. This image is representative of all the might and the glory of Babylon. This image is about the culture and the values and the gods. It's about the greatness and the way of life in Babylonian society. And so we're told that this king, he makes this big image and he tells everyone, 
I'm going to get all these guys together, and they're going to play this song. And when they start to play, everyone has to bow down. And whoever does not fall down and worship shall immediately be cast into the burning, fiery furnace. And so these three men, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, these Jewish men, refuse to do it. Okay, so before we go any further in the story, let's just take a moment to recognize what is being asked of them. Nebuchadnezzar, in this instance, he's not telling them they have to stop worshiping their God. There was no kind of prohibition of what these people were doing the rest of the time in their life. He didn't care if they worshiped Yahweh. He didn't care if they worshiped their Jewish God. His only request was that they bowed down to this image. It was them. It was these three guys who had the problem. It was their faith in the living God who gave the Ten Commandments and that first commandment that said, you should have no other gods before me. You should have no other gods beside me. That's where the problem came. See, if they'd been willing to go along with the plan, they would have been out of harm's way. Nobody would have known any different. But they knew that to do that, for them to bow down before this image would have been to compromise their faith. They knew that to gain favor with the king of Babylon, they would have to scorn the king of kings. Now, we are often faced with similar choices in our culture. Now, we're not going to be in this exact same situation, but we, like these guys, live in a pluralistic culture. We live in a culture that has a lot of gods. Now, there's a lot of religions, true. There are a lot of different religions in our culture, but there are also a lot of gods. Gods that we name sex and money and power and independence. In our culture, no one's ever going to tell you you can't worship God. What the culture would tell you is just don't rock the boat. You're free to believe whatever you want to believe, but keep it to yourself. <laughs> don't make a big deal about it. We're often given this choice to either conform to the values of society and, and be liked and be successful and be normal or be faithful and perhaps risk suffering. And so maybe, maybe it'll be the case that someday somebody in this room is going to face this kind of black and white ultimatum, this kind of story that, that these men are facing. But usually, we encounter these types of decisions in much more subtle ways. Usually, we're going to deal with this in more personal ways. Like the guy who I met, um, he got a new job. It was a good job. And he found out the first day of work that most of the people who worked there were in the habit of taking like multiple hour breaks in the middle of the day because their job required them to be out on call all the time. And so there was no way for the boss to know exactly where they were. So usually they'd work quickly and then just kind of hang out, <laughs> take a few hours off. And it was accepted. 
It's what everybody did. And then all of a sudden, this guy finds himself faced with this choice, right? Do I just do what everybody else is doing? Do I, I go with the flow? Do I stay out here and, and make easy money? Or do I be obedient <laughs> to my God? Do, do I uh, tell the truth? Should I be honest about where we are and risk being ostracized by these people who I just have met? Risk being maybe pushed out, you know, because who wants to keep that guy around? But he's given this choice to remain faithful to God and suffer or to compromise himself, compromise his beliefs, and be comfortable. And that's usually how it plays out for, for all of us. Sometimes it's relatively small things like that. Those little moments where you're having to choose, will I be honest with, in the workplace? And sometimes it's bigger than that, right? Sometimes we are asked to make a choice uh, about bigger things. We're given the choice of whether we're going to sit silently as men and women suffer under unjust laws and broken systems that don't really affect us. Broken laws and unjust systems that are contrary to the commands and the will of God. We can sit silently or we can stand up faithfully in obedience at the cost of our comfort, at the cost perhaps of our well-being. And it's in those moments, it's in moments like those that we're given the choice. We're given the choice between faithfulness to God or comfort in this life. So how do we respond? Well, let's talk about the character of true faith. Um, as the story goes on, Shadrach, Meshach, Abednego, they are brought before the king. And this moment, I think, is one of the most vivid and inspiring stories we find in all of the Old Testament. Right, it starts out with, with Nebuchadnezzar, who last week, Daniel described him this way. He said that you, O king, are the king of kings to whom the God of heaven has given the kingdom, the power, and the might, and the glory, and into whose hand he has given wherever they dwell, the children of man, the beasts of the field, and the birds of heaven, making you rule over them all. This guy was incredibly powerful, incredibly successful. There was, there was no one above him on the entire planet. And this man, we're told, is enraged when he finds out Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego won't bow down to this image. And so he has them brought before him. And this extremely powerful man draws a line in the sand. He looks them in the eye and he makes this ultimatum and he says, look, these guys are going to start to play. We're going to have all these guys come in and they're going to play this song one more time and I'm going to give you one last chance to bow down. Here's how he puts it. He says, if you do not worship, you shall immediately be cast into a burning fiery furnace. And who is the God who will deliver you out of my hands? 
And we're told that they respond. And they say, oh, Nebuchadnezzar, we have no need to answer you in this matter. If this be so, our God whom we serve is able to deliver us from the burning, fiery furnace. And he will deliver us out of your hand, O king. But if not, be it known to you, O king, that we will not serve your gods or worship the golden image that you have set up. Man, if that line doesn't just make you want to stand up and cheer, I don't know what to say, right? This is the thing that we want out of our heroes. Don't we want the guys who stand in the face of the enemy and they say, never, right? This isn't all that different from from Darth Vader, you know, telling Luke Skywalker, join me and we'll rule the galaxy. And Luke Skywalker says no, and he falls down into the tunnel, right? We should cheer for this stuff. But these guys aren't fantasy characters. These are real men in history. So how can they do it? How can they stand resolutely in this moment? You know, five months before his assassination, Martin Luther King preached a sermon on this text. And it's, it's powerful. You can find it online. You should go check it out. You'll realize how terrible this sermon was in comparison. It's good stuff. But he says in that sermon that there are individuals in every age who say, I will be disobedient to a king in order to be obedient to the king. There are men and women in every age who say, I will be disobedient to a king in order to be obedient to the king. And what makes the difference in those moments is the character of our faith. It's the distinction between what Dr. King calls an if faith and a though faith. An if faith, that faith that says, God, if you will deliver me, then I will follow you. If ultimately my life will work out, then I will surrender my plans to yours. The people with an if faith come to God because of what he can give them. And maybe that sounds absurd. But I think most people in America who call themselves Christians live with an if faith. Is it not true that, that we, more than any people in the history of the world, expect to live a life that is free from pain? We expect to live a life where we do not encounter suffering, right? We live in a world where we rarely encounter death and where we can see the world's worst problems, but often they're, they're more than arm, at arm's length. We might interact with them, but we interact with them on our own terms. And so when suffering does come, when pain does show up in our lives, when the people we care about die, when we experience heartache, when we experience disappointment, are we not the first people to question God, to curse God? Because deep down, we have this faith that says, if my life goes according to my plans, then I will worship. but not these men. 
These men have a though faith. It's that faith that says what Job says after he loses his children. After he loses his faith, he says, though he slay me, I will hope in him. Though he slay me, I will hope in him. Now, I want to be careful to point out here that that this type of faith, the second class, the though faith, it's not a defeated faith. It's not a faith that is resigned to being hopeless and to being helpless. On the contrary, it is a faith that deeply and strongly believes in the power of God, right? These men have no doubts that God can deliver them. You heard that, right? He says, they say, our God is able to do it, and he will do it. If we had more time, I'd love to just stop there and study that verse. Our God is able. I think this is something we need to hear as a church. In our church, we need to hear this. I think one of our our huge problems is that we don't have a God that we believe is able. I think it's evident in the the way we live. It's especially evident in the way we pray or or the way we don't pray. We don't think our God is able. We don't think that he can save. We don't think he's going to work. We don't think he's going to change things. We have no idea what Paul is talking about in Ephesians when he calls God him who is able to do far more abundantly than all we can ask or think. But these men, they knew God is able. There is no doubt in their mind. They don't even consider it for a second. They know he can do it if he wants to. They have this though faith, but it is not a defeated faith. But finally, we get to what I think are the most wonderful words in the passage. The most important words in this whole text. The, the thing we've been working towards till this point. Those three words, but if not. But if not. Those three words, I think we can say they are the hallmark of this though faith I'm talking about. But if not. You see, in those words, we realize that these men knew their God. That Their ultimate hope in this moment was not God working things out for their favor. Their ultimate hope was not God making things go their way, but it was that God would accomplish his purposes through them. Let me say that again. Their ultimate hope in this moment was not that God would work things out for their favor, but that God would accomplish his purposes through them. Honestly, that is the only kind of faith that can contend with real life. That is the only kind of faith that's going to get us through the real world. Because if you live long enough, then you know you're going to face suffering. We can't outrun it forever. And if you have that if faith, You're never going to make it. If you have a faith that says, if you bless me, 
then I will follow you. If you think that's how God works, well, either on one hand, you're going to doubt God's faithfulness to you. When things aren't going your way, you're going to assume it's because he has broken his end of the deal. You're going to assume it's because he's left you behind, because he hasn't been faithful to his promises. Or, on the other hand, you're going to doubt yourself. You're going to doubt your own security. You're going to think that your pain is because he is punishing you for not keeping up your end of the deal. But real faith has to be this though faith. Real faith has to be a faith that understands that the reward of God is God himself. It's not what you can get from him. The reward of faith is God himself, not what you could get from him. It's a faith that loves God for who he is, not what he does. And doesn't that just make sense? Isn't that how every true love has to be? I mean, what if our wedding vows ended with in sickness and in health till death do us part, assuming it remains beneficial for me, right? That's not what love is like. True faith can't be circumstantial. True faith has to seek to bring God glory regardless of the personal consequences or the rewards. True faith is a faith that knows. True faith is a faith that can say, I might be shamed for this. I might miss out on something because of this. I might be ostracized. Who knows? I might be arrested. I might even be killed but to have him, to know him, to be in the presence of the true king for all eternity is worth infinitely more than whatever this world can give me. Only that kind of faith, only that though faith is strong enough to deal with the hard realities of everyday life. And only that kind of faith is going to give us the boldness to stand up, to stand firm when the world is calling you to compromise. Because it's only that kind of faith. It's only that faith that understands that even though God is able to deliver us in the midst of the biggest trials, it's better to die with him than to live apart from him. Or the way Dr. King said it, he said, if you have an if faith, he said, you might live longer, but you'll be just as dead. So how do we get that kind of faith? Well, I want us to, to look at the catalyst for real faithfulness. The thing that's going to produce this kind of faith in us. And it comes as we look at the rest of the story, right? Um, Nebuchadnezzar, in this moment, he is overcome with anger. He's furious. It tells us that he heats up this furnace as hot as it will possibly go. So hot that when these guys open the furnace, they all die. And they take Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, and they, they bind them up. They throw them in the furnace with all their flammable clothes on. 
and they wait. And after a few moments, to his shock, he sees that the men in the furnace are not dead and they're not bound. But they're walking around, it tells us. And there is a fourth person in there. And so he calls them out of the flames. And they're unarmed completely. At the end of the story, it says that he praises their God and he promotes them into higher positions of authority. What are we supposed to do with that? How do we handle the end of the story? Well, as I was reading it, I couldn't help but be reminded of uh, a similar passage. In Deuteronomy, if you know anything about the book of Deuteronomy, it's written by Moses to the people as they're, uh, the people of Israel as they're about to enter the promised land for the first time. He kind of recaps their entire history, reminds them what God has done for them before they go to achieve the reward that they've been waiting for. And in that passage in Deuteronomy 4, God says, when you enter this promised land, take care lest you forget the covenant of the Lord your God, which he made with you, and make a carved image, the form of anything the Lord your God has forbidden you. For the Lord your God is a consuming fire, a jealous God. Do you see the connection there? It's kind of the mirror image of the story we just read. In those verses, God says that the punishment for bowing down to another God, whether it's a 90-foot-tall image of gold, or whether it's just bowing down to yourself and your own desires. The punishment is the consuming fire of his judgment. And that's a really scary thing. That's especially scary when we start to think about our own hearts. When we start to look at this example that we've been reading in Daniel and then start to look at ourselves and realize there's a huge gap there. When we see these guys being faithful and you realize how many times, even this week, you've compromised yourself. How many times you have bowed down. How many times you have sought conformity and compromise in order to escape discomfort. When you think about how many times you've remained silent rather than speak up as people around us are suffering injustice and being crushed by it. But the amazing thing that we see in this story, as good as these men were, as excellent as their faithfulness was, it wasn't their faithfulness that saved them. It was God. It was God showing up in the midst of the furnace. And that's really good news for us. Because the truth is, rather than deserving to be rescued, we deserve to be thrown into the fire of the King of Kings. We deserve His righteous wrath. 
Scripture tells us that God is a righteous judge who will not let injustice slide. He will never let the guilty walk. But Scripture also tells us that He is a loving God. An infinitely loving God who would stop at nothing to save His people. And that's the story of the Gospel. That instead of giving us what we deserved, through His Son, God has rescued us from the flames. First, by entering the furnace of this world. By enduring all the temptations that we face on a daily basis. And never bending the knee. Never bowing to those lesser gods. And by dying on the cross. He took the punishment that we had earned through our disobedience. He was consumed so that we would be delivered. The promise of the gospel is that everyone who turns from serving the things of this world and turns to Christ, their deliverance is guaranteed. Not because of how faithful you have been, but because of how faithful he is. That gospel is the only thing that's ever going to give us a though faith. Because it's only when you get that, only when you realize these things, that, that like these guys, our deliverance, it's not dependent on our own strength. It's not dependent on our faith, but it's dependent, just like them, on the one with whom our faith rests. When that happens, we realize that it's him we need. He's the one we need, not some temporary comfort. When when you know that, then you realize you don't have to worry whether or not he's going to deliver you from whatever suffering you're going through. You don't have to worry whether he's going to deliver you from death because you know that he has already delivered you from the ultimate death. He's the only king who comes into the fire to save his people. And his rescue is the only rescue we need. He is the reward. He is the one our hearts desire. Only when that happens, only when Christ is your hope and your salvation, only when he is your reward, will you be able to stand. When the choice comes before you, whether you're going to stand in faithfulness or compromise. Only when you rest in him will you be able to say, though he slay me, yet I will hope in him. Let's pray. Father, we're grateful for your word. And we're grateful for these stories that we can lose connection with when we hear them so many times, when we see them made into storybooks and and cartoons, and uh, they lose their power. But Father, I thank you for your spirit that reveals to us the truth of your word, that you are a God who has come into the flames to redeem your people. And so right now, Lord, I want to pray for the people in this room who feel beaten down, for the ones here who realize that this week they have bowed down, that maybe with their whole lives they have spent it serving their own gods. 
and they're dead. They're empty. Lord, I pray that in the midst of that pain, you would show them the good news of the gospel. That you would invite them to lay down their life and take up their cross and follow you. And Father, I pray for those of us around this world who are suffering for your sake. Lord, would you give us faith and help us remember that the reward is you. The kingdom that you've given us cannot be shaken. Father, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.